0: Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges, such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing.
1: There's a beautiful way of describing autism which is called always unique, totally interesting. Some people call it totally intelligent and sometimes mysterious. And I think that's a beautiful way of describing autism.
2: Episode three, Expert Insight. How is ASD or autism spectrum disorder diagnosed in the medical world and how does it impact individuals? Dr Annie Moulden, AOM, is an expert in child development and neurodiverse conditions such as ASD, ADHD and anxiety, as well as a number of other clinical paediatric conditions. Annie has worked with kids and their families for almost 25 years, and in this conversation she explains ASD and how it affects kids as they grow up. Annie also shares positive stories and examples of how parenting can be adjusted to support kids to thrive.
0: Yo, yo, what's up, Anna?
2: Hey, Jordan.
0: How are you going?
2: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am doing well. I'm doing well. How are you feeling about this episode?
2: Well, Annie, Dr. Annie Molden, should be more formal, Dr. Annie Molden, we call her Annie in our home. She's been with us for a long time, so I'm really excited to share with you the... Uh, insight and the expertise that we get to benefit from on a regular basis when we meet with Annie. But also, why don't you tell them a little bit about how the interview rolled?
0: Look, yeah, it's uh, I call this episode the resilience episode and Anna said, oh, yeah, like I totally get that. You know, it really was amazing. They were chatting about the strength And perseverance of you know young children with special needs, and I said, yeah, that. But also the resilience that we had with our sound quality. So in this episode, we had a bit of a kerfuffle uh, before we started recording. So we ended up just passing one handheld mic around the room Mm. between us Mm. in the clinical rooms. In the clinical rooms, it was uh, look we showed up to a very professional setting and almost embarrassed ourselves with our tech issues, but we overcame it and here we are today.
2: I wonder if the listeners will even notice.
0: Yeah, well, it probably didn't help me drawing absolute attention to it right at the start. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hope you enjoy and looking forward to hearing if you have any feedback and questions on what we discuss.
2: Let us know what you think. Welcome, Dr. Annie Molden, to our podcast. Jordan and I are really excited. We've been talking about how getting experts to be able to explain the hidden conditions that we both have experienced with in different ways, from an expert who can really help us understand what's going on and what's been happening in the history of medicine around this. It's very exciting. So, thank you for joining us today. And um, we've decided, and, and you've been very generous to offer to come back. So today, we're just going to talk about autism in kids and get you to explain a little bit from a medical perspective what does it mean, so that we can build a better understanding and awareness. So, any. Just to kick off, could you please explain what is Autism Spectrum Disorder or ASD? Um,
1: so Autism Spectrum Disorder, I guess, can be countenanced in terms of the technicalities of the diagnosis, and we'll go through that in a minute. Um, or it can, we can talk more about what ASD really means, I guess, in terms of um, its implications. So from a technical point of view, uh, autism does come under a what we call a DSM-5 classification, and that is for many psychiatric conditions, and that's uh, an issue of contention for a number of us. Um, there's a a beautiful way of describing autism, which is called always unique, totally interesting, some people call it totally intelligent, and sometimes mysterious. And I think that's a beautiful way of describing autism. So always unique, totally interesting, sometimes mysterious. I love that. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. So that would be nice if that was the criteria for diagnosing it. However, there are set criteria, and it clearly is very important because The diagnosis, as with all diagnoses, needs to be correct. You don't want to have a diagnosis of ASD if someone doesn't meet criteria. The first is that there are deficits or difficulties with social communication. And that manifests itself, it's a variation in how kids with ASD present in their social Mm -hmm. communication difficulties is enormous. And I think there's always been a saying, if you've met a child with ASD, you've met one child with ASD. And children with ASD have a pattern of personality traits that are consistent, but they have their own personality, which is completely unique.
2: That must be so hard in some Is it hard to diagnose because it's so varied or does it become... As you do it over time, you start to see patterns.
1: That's right. And that's why the criteria are so important, because the social communication deficits, and they have to impair functioning. Um, And so having those clear clear, clear criteria that you have to actually meet to be able to say this meets the criteria for a social communication deficit that is impairing functioning. And then the other half of the criteria is around restricted interests and repetitive behaviours. And they can sometimes be quite difficult to tease out, especially for parents, because... When you're parenting a child, if they have a restricted interest or repetitive behaviour or a ritual, you may not notice it because it's just there and may well have always been there.
2: Especially if you're parenting for the first time. That's Abs- what I found. I mean, our second child, as you know, Millie, is, um, has a diagnosis of ASG. And I remember very early on when someone asked me, did she play imaginative play? I said, oh, yes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, As a, I was a second parent and even then I couldn't pick up anything specifically different. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think when the formal diagnosis is done, so the diagnostic assessment, what we would say is gold standard, is that includes a paediatric assessment from a developmental and a health point of view, a psychological assessment and um, a speech and language assessment, and that, that it is important to have all three inputs because they identify are different areas of difficulty.
2: Is it required?
1: Um, That's a bone of contention. In fact, there are different requirements in different states. It's very clear in Victoria that the gold standard is for those to have all three done. Um, I think there are times when people do both a paediatric assessment and a psychological assessment, and there is a collective agreement with the family that, in fact, there is enough clarity and um, they may well already be engaged with a speech therapist by the time the diagnosis is made. So sometimes the decisions made is not, not to do a formal speech and language assessment if there's already a speech therapist involved.
0: And is, are there limitations that you see with the current form of diagnosis or controversy surrounding these these differences between the states, what you believe?
1: Uh, given that I only work in Victoria, I think... Um, I don't really see that. There are a number of national forums and it's clear that there are some situations where, in fact, the diagnosis is made um, just by by one member of the team. I think that where the diagnosis is clear cut, where where there aren't any difficulties in terms of saying, you, you, does this meet criteria or not, then I, then that's probably not so much of a challenge. Um, although it does worry me that children might get diagnosed to actually that isn't the appropriate diagnosis. Uh, because I think the important thing about ASD is once you make the diagnosis, it's very important to explain to parents that this is I I actually, and Anna knows this because we've talked about it, this is a, for me, a lifelong personality type. I know it's called a disorder and that's okay, but for me it's a a set of personality traits and they will change with age and they will change with developmental capacity, but they won't go away. And if we think about our own personality types, that's exactly what happens to all of us, is as we get older and as we mature and experience things, those personality traits might change, um, be modified. But in fact, Autism is a lifelong condition of a constellation of personality traits. And so it's really important that the diagnosis is correct.
2: When we spoke to Deidre, she explained to us that the cognitive behaviour therapy has been shifting to accommodate gender, because up until now it's understood that a lot of the criteria, or at least the cognitive behavioural approaches, have been based on boys with autism. Has the same thing happened with the diagnostic criteria? Has it been upgraded or reviewed to factor in the differences of gender?
1: Well, it's really interesting you say that, because I think that there are two very key aspects to um, ASD. One, of course, is that it is a very, very broad spectrum, running from, as I've always said to you, normal, in inverted commas, to far normal. So neurotypical is, I guess, the word that's used. I'm not not a fan of it. Um, Then there are, without doubt, um, a good number of people in our um, communities who have a number of autistic traits, if you like, but that they don't meet full criteria. So that used to be called pervasive developmental disorder. That's not used anymore. But there's no doubt and we all know lots of people who've got some autistic traits. I wonder whether we all have one or two.
2: I think, um, as you know, one of my children has ADHD, one has ASD plus ADHD, and my third has, I think, is absolutely got some autistic traits, but, but not... I don't think there's enough.
1: Exactly. And I think so it is a spectrum from neurotypical through to some people who have some autistic traits to children with mild ASD clearly meet criteria, but the degree of impairment that they have is considered mild. And then, of course, it progresses to moderate and and more severe. And what we're talking about, I think it's important we highlight that we are just talking about the ASD today because, in fact, some children with ASD have other co-mobilities or co-diagnoses such as an intellectual disability. And it's important to remember that those two things live together, but ASD in of itself um, is not an intellectual disability.
0: And how has diagnosis changed over time from what it was initially to how it's progressed to what it is today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really interesting reading. And I, one of the things I always encourage parents to do soon after the diagnosis, and obviously every parent takes this diagnosis in a very different way. Anna and I have talked about that. Um, And that depends very much on the timing. So where people are are at in their journey. So if it comes out of left centre and it's not something people see coming, it's much more difficult than people who've been coming to it for a long period of time. And it's almost a relief. And they say, okay, now we know what it is. We've got a framework. Now we can move forward. So I think in terms of Once the diagnosis is made, and I think we will talk about that because I actually think it's a really critical part of the journey. But one of the things I always ask parents, suggest, not ask, suggest to parents that they do is read Tony Atwood's book. Um, it's actually called A Complete Guides to Asperger's, which is interesting because in the DSM-5 criteria, Asperger's has been removed. And that's a bit of a bone of contention for some of us. It is for me. Um, it's probably not politically correct to say that. But anyway, um, well, so... people are
2: still using I mean, people in- insist on still using it. Well, so. prior to
1: the change from DSM-4 to DSM-5, you know, my teenage patient's who had a diagnosis of Asperger's because they clearly met criteria, you know, jokingly say to me, so so my personality doesn't exist anymore, type thing. Can you so, quickly
0: explain the DSM model and the different TSO levels of that?
1: Yeah, so this is from the American Psychiatry Association and the DSM criteria have been around for a long time to try and I guess, provide reliable constructs for making all sorts of mental health diagnoses. And you can look up the DSM-5 criteria for a diagnosis of ASD, but also, say, for generalised anxiety disorder or ADHD. And they are very clear criteria. And I think they are extremely useful. As I it, it said, that little... Slight challenge we had with the DSM-5 dropping the word Asperger's and calling all of these children autism spectrum disorders. There are, I'm sure, some merits, but one of the things that's been lost is exactly what you were talking about before, and that is that we need to remember that there's a broad range of impact from very mild to mild to severe in terms of the ASD, and that's important, but the gender differences are also very significant, and that children who are male, who have ASD, often demonstrate the traits quite differently to the girls with ASD. It's not, I, I don't mean to be black and white about it at all, because as I said, the personality profile of the child is the thing that drives the individual differences. But the, by and large, there are some quite significant gender differences between girls with ASD and boys with ASD.
2: And do you think that the criteria is sufficient as it is to be able to pick up girls
1: I think girls who are mild in terms of their traits and who have a personality type that is not difficult or challenging, Um, so girls who are particularly compliant just by nature of their personality, tend to be much later diagnosed than boys. And I think that we do need to remember that most girls with ASD, certainly in the mild component, are not diagnosed until well into their primary school years. And it often means they have a history of many years of really unsatisfactory engagement, either at school, socially, sporting networks. And that's just so sad because... That, that imprints them for this feeling of being different but, but feeling of actually of failing in terms of their social interactions. So I think the earlier the diagnosis is made, the more appropriate the expectations can be. I often say to families, you know, we've got stairs in the practice here, as you know, I'm not going to ask someone with a plaster on his leg to walk upstairs. I wouldn't do it, wouldn't expect it. So we need the, the importance of an early diagnosis is so that we can actually then ask ask what is reasonable of somebody. And uh, so that expecting children with ASD to be able to do things that neurotypical kids can do without difficulty is is naive and that's what we need to move towards.
2: And it's so, um, from a psychological perspective, once you have set those beliefs about yourself, they're very hard to unpick. Absolutely. Yeah. I
1: mean, I think that, Again, there are lots of theories, but, you know, many people would say that our core set of self-belief is pretty much set in stone by seven. Um, So that if you're not diagnosed until after seven and you've had uh, really challenging experiences at kindergarten and in your early years of primary school, it can be very, very difficult and take a long time to unpack that.
2: That's what's happened with our Millie. Mm. She, I mean, as you know, was diagnosed at the end of PrEP. And I always knew there was something, but I knew nothing about autism, so I couldn't have possibly um, guessed that that's what it would have been. So I think I was actually a combination of what you just described in some way—relieved because I knew there was something, but also really shocked mm. and quite honestly devastated because I, um, one, I didn't understand what it, I didn't understand what it meant, but I knew it was lifelong, and I knew that life was going to—it already was hard for her, and it was going to continue to be hard.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so true that. That's exactly what most parents tell me that they feel is that initially it's like this is going to be so hard, but they come with time, as you have, to actually realise that totally unique, yes, mysterious, absolutely, but interesting and intelligent and fabulous, totally. And so I think that it's really important to to go through that journey. We talked before and I Got sidetracked because I do that all the time about Tony Atwood's book. But one of the things that I always suggest to parents is that um, that they actually get this book because it's called The Complete Bar to Asperger's Syndrome, and it's been edited a number of times over, and it really is a textbook. And it's and I pull it out and I show it in hard copy to parents,
0: just so the listeners know. Annie did just pull it out <laughs> just to, to show us how she was saying that.
1: <laughs> Sorry, and and I pull it out and I say to them, look, you know, this is a really hard read. But it's a really important read because, to my mind, it is still one of the very best books that you can start your learning journey on as a parent with, I usually suggest, as Anna will tell you, getting little the little mini post-it notes and as you read a page that goes, oh, you know, that's, that's so relevant, put a sticky note on it because not every page in the book will be relevant for you. Many of the pages actually won't be um, because, in fact, what is relevant for your particular child um, will only be a part of that.
2: And I, I, I mean, I have so many books now. I love a I love a book. I'm not going to say that I've read them all, but I've definitely like skipped to the bits that I think are helpful to me. But I did find that hard initially picking up the book, and and so much of it didn't apply. That it, it's it, it's really important to hand it over with that. Instruction. Yeah, I think otherwise, you think, well, this isn't my child.
1: Correct. Yeah, and I think especially when you're new to the diagnosis, you actually want to ring, you read things that say that it's not. Um, so I think it's important to say that there is only some of this book that will be really ring true, but put the post-it note there because you'll be able to then come back to it. So I encourage parents to really try and read it from start to finish. Doesn't matter if it takes them a year, because I think that the better informed parents are the better they understand ASD the more they can then really understand deeply their child i think it's very d- difficult for someone who doesn't have ASD to truly get inside the head of someone who does and i think you would agree
2: i do and i find that really sad like that actually makes me very sad because i i feel sad that i can't deeply understand and relate to her you know because she's my ch- she's my daughter so I do. I try very hard, and I mean, I can. I'm always learning, but I, that is still sad for me.
1: Yeah, and I think it's critical in terms of managing um, behaviour. But I think that you know, one of the typical parts of any presentation of a child I see with ASD is that they always have a history of in inverted commas tantrums, which we call meltdowns, and um, so they're seen as being a bad behaviour because they are awful to watch and they're often quite destructive of walls and furniture and people um, and it's, it isn't, the tantrums aren't awful but in fact if you actually take the step back to say what is happening inside to for them to actually make them manifest that behaviour and in fact it's horrible, gut-wrenching, physically ailing anxiety that usually drives it.
2: I can relate to that bit. Mm. I had tantrums and I, as you know I have ADHD, I didn't know, my parents didn't know, they just saw me as a hyperactive child, which I think is what they called it back then in the 70s and 80s. But I, even the other day, I, I might have only been yesterday, I, I wanted to scream so loud. I think I did.
0: <laughs> so, and I
2: I saw myself doing it and I was like, oh yes, I still have that tendency to just go from zero to 10 really fast and to feel so angry, seemingly out of nowhere. So at least in that sense, I can relate. You do yeah. it, yeah.
1: And I think that, That's why it's so important for parents that if they can understand that that the tantrum they're seeing is actually not a tantrum, they're not being naughty, there's no choice, that something internally feels so dreadful that they have to act out that emotion to do something with it. And that then sort of enables people to then go, so how can we predict that? And there are, as you have experienced, times where you know absolutely that if you take Millie into a situation, then she will get very distressed very quickly. Well, that's okay, you can avoid it. But unfortunately, there are also other scenarios where in fact it comes out of nowhere. And that's, that's where obviously having someone like Deirdre on the team who actually then can get one step ahead and say to her, okay, when, you, when you're when you going from zero to 10, we need to try some things, which are very difficult for young children, but they certainly get better with it as they get older.
0: And we're talking a lot about like families and parents who kind of get brought into this world. And then it's all about reconciling and understanding what's my child going through. And through that, you gain empathy and, and tolerance and understanding. But we were talking earlier about, you know, with a late diagnosis, even though that's not actually relevant, here, but you know, in the play yard and in the schoolyard and neurotypical kids and neurotypical families not really having that that empathy, and then there exists this sort of the families that are in the community get it, and the families that aren't in the community don't get it, and then on the playground, most kids don't get it because their parents aren't getting it. Uh, I'm assuming you know, kind of to recommend that just everyone reads, you know, a guide to, to aspects. But what are things to at least bring it a little bit closer that? the kid in the play yard and their parents just aren't completely ignorant until it's brought into their family sure. via, you know, a diagnosis or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that Anna and I were talking about last week is that, you know, the diagnosis of ASD is increasing and there are and there will always be some debates about is that better recognition and I'm, I'm sure there were people that I knew when I was growing up that had ASD that didn't get a diagnosis. So I think part of it is that people are being diagnosed more. But what that has resulted in is that, in fact, that... There is now much more open discussion about ASD. There is probably a child with ASD at least in every year level of every public school, if not in every class. And so the more that people are talking about it, the greater awareness there is. There's no doubt that in the educational setting, I've been practising for 25 years and the knowledge of teachers 25 years ago and the knowledge of teachers today um, about ASD is just so... It's it's extraordinary, the the progress that's been made, with lots and lots of professional development for teachers. It still varies, um, and I think most parents would still say that there are some teachers who really deeply understand their child with ASD often if they have a child of their own with ASD, uh, and that other teachers still don't really understand it. How that's translated is that now most schools have got policies of aren't supporting children with ASD and that from a very early age they're starting to have conversations now with the primary school age children about, you know, these sorts of conditions, ASD, ADHD and so forth, trying to move past exactly that sort of... ..that, that lack of awareness and that lack of knowledge that you've talked about I was I was so heartened to see the media coverage last week uh, of the beautiful teenage boy who was lost in really quite extraordinary cold conditions. But I thought, and, and I'm only going on what I heard, obviously, on the media, but I mean, the fact that people in the, that community were cooking barbecues with the windows open so that he could smell that because his mother had said he loves the smell of a barbecue. They were playing Thomas the Tank Engine because that's his favourite music and the helicopters were being, you know, advised not to go too low because he was so noise sensitive. You know, what was beautiful was that not only was the mum sharing that, and that is really important information, but that everyone took it to heart. Everyone actually deeply understood that the noise was going to upset him. And and I just think that we've come such a long way as a community so that there is that understanding in the community that for this little boy, noise was going to be really frightening. And that's a wonderful thing.
2: It's so beautiful. That story is really heartening. One of the things that I struggle with, I suppose, is still this. So that boy, if you didn't, if you didn't know, you you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at him. But when it was explained that he was nonverbal, and that that was mentioned every time that it he was nonverbal, it. which I thought was interesting, I, I think that that. evokes a lot of empathy in in people because they think, oh, that must be so hard and, you know, the poor family and, you know, not with pity but with love. But when your child is verbal and when your child looks and behaves at the outset like everyone else, I don't know that we quite get that love yet. It's not quite there.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think we've still got a long way to go. It's interesting that one of my... A long time ago, one of the mothers of uh, one of my patients said to me, have you noticed that all your children with ASD are really striking looking, really beautiful children? And I said, you know, I have noticed that. And she said, well, I have a theory. And I said, what is it? She said, well, I think they are deliberately beautiful. I think it's part of the ASD because it means when we first set eyes on them, we just love them even that little bit more. And it's a very interesting trait. And in fact, I have to say that... The many children I look after with ASD, they are a very strikingly attractive group of children. I don't know have you have you heard that before. I, I have heard
2: it. I think we've even you, talked you about it. You certainly have that case. Uh, I'm like,
1: well, I <laughs> she like is to very beautiful. That
2: my husband is very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that I, I think that nature knows what it's doing. Mm, it's I actually really agree. I mean, we know that baby animals are really gorgeous, right, because everyone else is less inclined to step on them or hurt them. I do. I really think there's something in there. And that is such a mystery, isn't it? I mean, to your point about mystery. um, And also, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. It's totally Uh, fair, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And just going back to to chatting about what we're talking about, about people being great to recognise really I've got inverted commas here, just obvious disability. And in the schoolyard, a 10 or 11, 12-year-old, you know, the 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 kid who can't talk or the kid who's really really again inverted commas weird people are pretty understanding of that and we've come a long way and we don't you don't laugh at the kid who has physical disabilities you don't laugh at the kid who clearly you know freaks out and has meltdowns but I guess that we still those are the same kids who will not laugh and will tell kids off laughing will get very frustrated with the boy or girl who just isn't quite getting how to play down ball or is making a scene in class because it's just not making sense to them. Where's the way forward with that advocacy? Because I think we've, we've done well. We've done really great and, and everyone's done well at recognising with high support, special needs and physical or obvious intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities, that is something to love and support and not make fun of. But then with those invisible disabilities and ones that present itself in different ways, there's still a lot of judgment then and, and not a lot of patience at all uh, for those kids who are just... Uh, a little bit maybe difficult. Where's the way forward for for that? Because I think that's it's it's a lot harder to explain because it's not just physical or it's not just, you know, high support and obvious. It's really a lot more of empathy that needs to be invoked.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mentioned before that I think the professional development for teaching staff has really um, increased very significantly, but it's still patchy. I think you're right. We have a long way to go as a community and that's where these sorts of things that you're doing are just so important because what we need to do is take it out of the consulting room and bring it into people's homes so that You know, parents can talk to their children about these hidden disabilities. As you say, the children who've got mild ASD have really got still quite significant impairments and their social communication is inevitably challenged, otherwise they don't have the diagnosis. So they need a lot of support with that and they need a lot of compassion. And that's what we have to try and drive is is helping people be compassionate and say, um, there's a beautiful story in the start of Tony Edwards' book, um, which, is, which he says is fictitious, but it's about a mum whose daughter is having a birthday party and she decides she wants to invite this new boy who's come to school and she's noticed that all the boys are being mean to him. And so she says to her mum, I want him to come to the birthday party. And he walked into the birthday party and he said to the little girl's mum, how many batteries do you have in the house? I have 197 in (laughs) mine. And the mum said, anyway, as the story goes on, and then she said he went outside to play with the girls and as he walked outside someone tripped him up and they all started laughing. And so, you know, there's... What we have to do is bring all these conversations into the home so that, in fact, we, we are more open with the diagnosis. I think we talked about this at the time that Millie was diagnosed in terms of who you tell. And there's an often a sense, well, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> we'll just keep it to ourselves and then it might go away. Um, but, in fact, what you need to do, obviously, is... When you're ready and when the timing is right, share it with your family and your close friends so that you, you get the right level of support. But then it's really important to take it into the school ground. <laughs> I've got a beautiful patient who's one of my absolute favourites and he I've known him since he was two and... He was in mid to late primary school when it was very clear that it needed to be shared with his classroom. And so his mum did a book, and you've seen the book, of photos of him all the way through his life and a story about him. It was a story of him and with photos and including his brother and that sort of stuff and then a description about ASD, what it is and what it isn't, and it's beautifully written in plain language. And his mum got up and read it out to the class and then he read it out and then showed all the books and showed all the pictures and, and just called it out to the class and said, this is me, you know.
2: I've heard quite a lot of those stories. I, there was one at one of the many schools that we've been to where I think it was maybe around year four and the boy got up and did a PowerPoint presentation. He was so proud. Like he was really, he was the, he was the expert on it. And he was very, like, not shy, you know, to be, to be talking it through. And I think Millie actually did the same thing at one point. She quite liked, I mean, she loves a crowd and uh, <laughs> she likes attention. And I think also same thing, like, she at that stage wasn't, there was no shame because mm. she was still too young. And what I'm worrying about is I think that's starting to come out now, the sort of recognition of, hang on a minute, I am different and I don't know how I feel. So, the, you know, the, over the years and when the maturity comes in, the view about owning it, Herself, I mean, and to the question of should we tell her, she told us.
1: Correct. We've had that interesting conversation about the diagnosis because often at the time diagnosis, parents ask. So when do we tell him her? And depending a bit on whereabouts, everyone is on the journey, and it is very much a journey, and it's such an individual one, isn't it, Anna? And so I think that it's important to say that actually it's very important at some point that the diagnosis is shared, but. Almost exclusively, I find that actually by the time parents get round to having the diagnosis conversation, as they often say, the child says, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've, no, no, months, months, years. I mean, children now are on the internet from a very young age.
2: Well, Millie goes around diagnosing others. <laughs> I mean, she, she would say, That person's autistic. This is before she was. <laughs> that person is, Oh, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then she said, Just turn to me and say, Am I autistic? And I was like, well, Yeah, a little. I said, I think at the time I said, You've got a sprinkle. And you said a sprinkle. Yeah, <laughs> you tell me that. <laughs> um, she's got me, more now. <laughs> But now she, and she's so fascinated by, you know, she comes into your office, she likes to read the books, she's Mm. really interested in, she'll say, what do you think that person's got, something. You know, she can Mm. pick, she's actually very insightful and amazing sort of ability to kind of note that something's a little bit different. Mm. And,
1: I mean, very compassionate, not only obviously of ASD, but also of of many other things. And um, I think that that diagnosis conversation is important because, fundamentally, knowing your personality type at the age of seven or eight or nine, I mean, what an incredible asset. I mean, I don't think I've worked my own personality type out, but I think that to know deep, to try and deeply understand your own personality and the things that you can do well and the things that trigger you to to be distressed and understanding that from an early age is really important. And then for those children that do have the confidence to share it with their peers, that's how we're going to educate, you know, and coming back to your question, I keep digressing away from your question, sorry, that's... Pardon me. Um, But I think that, um, you know, that's how we're going to educate the community is by actually really opening this up so that people understand, as you say, it's very easy for children with physical disability. Everyone can see the disability. This is very hidden, even more so, as we said, because these children do not have any physical disabilities and, as we've talked about, they're often very, very charming, beautiful, gorgeous children, which they are.
2: Um, I think the movement of awareness around mental health is really helping because mental health is also hidden mental health issues are hidden and I think that more understanding from Beyond Blue and the work that Jeff Kennett did to build awareness around that I think that's made a really big shift because you know I want to be careful about language whether we call this a mental health issue or not but being able to make that connection for people to say, well, you know, we're more understanding now about depression, we're more understanding about anxiety. A lot of the time that's actually the things that are causing the problems for these kids anyway. And so Correct. I do think there's a, that's really been helped. But, I mean, also because there's more diagnoses, I mean, Millie goes up to kids now and says, I've got autism, what have you got? Mm. And often they have something.
1: <laughs> well, let's be honest, we all do. Um, I think that's I think that's true and I think it's very healthy and I think, that we need to aim, that's where we need to aim to be, to be having much more open conversations about this. I think coming back to your point then is that mental illness, mental health issue, I think it it is stigmatising, but it's also important that at the moment... Wherever we are at 2020, this is considered a, a mental health diagnosis. But I think what's important now is that, in fact, we are trying to continue to destigmatize, whether you have a mental health diagnosis, a physical health diagnosis or whatever, that, in fact, that's just, it's just a diagnosis. And, it's, and what's so important about getting the diagnosis right is that, you know, I always say to parents, if a child comes to see me with a cough, if the cough is due to pneumonia, the treatment's quite different to if the cough is due to asthma, And it's the same thing here. So anxiety is a good example, because that's when we first met, Um, is that many children now are presenting in quite, you know, young children now presenting with crippling anxiety at the ages of five, six and seven. And some of those children have generalised anxiety disorder, and some of them have anxiety pluses, which is what I call it. And then we go down the path of exploring whether their anxiety is a component of their ASD. And I think that getting the diagnosis right, because the treatment of, of generalised anxiety disorder on its own, as opposed to anxiety that's a component of ASD, they they are very different treatments. I mean, they've got some an- analogies, but the you, you don't want to miss the diagnosis of ASD and go down the wrong rabbit hole. That's
2: so interesting. I think I would have just assumed that anxiety is anxiety and you treat it however you treat it. So that's I would love it if we could do a whole session on anxiety, actually, and also a session on ADD, ADHD, because I know they are are. very different, but they're also all hidden.
1: Well, and I think, as you and I have talked about before, that... Many children with ASD are hardwired anxious. They've, they've been anxious since they were babies and they're anxious as toddlers and if you look back on the way they reacted and responded to things, they were anxious all the way through.
2: And I, I see that in ADHD as well. Now I've got the diagnosis from my oldest. Looking back now, there were things that he found much more distressing than another child might. So yeah. So it is, It's going back is so interesting. I've even gone back through my, through Millie's old preschool reports and like even daycare reports and even there there were signs you know now looking back I can see signs everywhere but I didn't know enough to bring them all together and I guess no one else did at the time.
1: No and I think you also what's developmentally appropriate so ADHD is a good example where you know there are many many busy hyperactive impulsive kids at the age of three and four um, and it's only when it persists and it's the same with many other of these traits it's when things persist and they become developmentally Inappropriate um, that you can go down that diagnostic path. So I think the diagnosis is crucial um, to get it right and because that then, as I said before, you know, you treat asthma different to pneumonia. So it's important to get the, the framework and the scaffolding right at the start. And then you can have appropriate conversations with schools, you get the right therapists on board and you can then, you know, early intervention, one of the beautiful things about ASD is that, so many of the children respond so incredibly well to the right support from the super clever people of psychology, speech pathologists and OTs. And the differences that that can make, it's a slow burn, as I've always said to say to parents, you have to be patient, this is going to take years. But the difference in, I see in children who've had Really good quality intervention and the children that haven't had that intervention, it's 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 poles apart.
2: It's so important for parents to know that I think. I mean I that breaks my heart every time I hear that because we didn't get it until seven and I do I mean I just wish that we could have started at two, you know, like I know many people do. But also, um Deirdre's mentioned that some parents just reject the diagnosis because it's too much for them, which I understand, but also what a shame to miss out. If you get it early so important to understand that there's actual real benefit in that.
1: Yeah, look, I think that there's there's no doubt there are parents um, who are very fearful of the diagnosis and I completely understand that. But I think that my approach is to try and gently take them down the, the fact that getting the diagnosis and getting the framework and the scaffolding is right. And you just have to be patient. But I agree with you. For me, the reason that that getting the diagnosis is right is, and I always say, you know, I'm not interested in putting a a label on your child's forehead, um, but that we have to get the diagnosis right so that we can get the intervention
0: right. And how big of a difference does it make an early diagnosis as opposed to a late one?
1: I think that it, um, it varies enormously compared to the child. I mean... The, the earlier the diagnosis, often it does mean that the child has got more severe traits uh, so that, in fact, you probably don't want too early a diagnosis. I mean, you can, you can actually diagnose autism if you're old like me. Then, you, you know, you can diagnose it now really very young. Um, in terms of formal, doing a formal diagnosis, you know, it wouldn't usually be sort of much under the age of two, but I think I can sometimes see young infants who I'm worried about our
2: paediatrician was worried about Millie when she was born because yeah. she was small and she was floppy. And I didn't know why he was asking those extra questions. Mm-hmm. He sent us off to a neurologist at one point and to an endocrinologist at one point. And I was like, "What? Why?" And he mm-hmm. he wouldn't tell me what he suspected. And now, it's now I'm just frustrated.
1: A, well, now I mean, I often it would just be a hunch, and I, you
0: don't want to go down, as I said, don't want to go down the rabbit hole it's, too early. It's interesting. I I have someone uh, close. To me uh who has a, a young a young child who's just one and they've said that they think that she she might have autism and that's a that's a bold thing to say because it's that's they don't know like at one yeah. year old like that's an early chance to say and and that's a big thing for the family to be grappling with now because everyone knows it, once you say we think then 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 you've told them like then even if you come back and say whatever it is, once you've even, a professional's given a hunch, you know, that changes. So it's a big a big responsibility, and to be saying it that early, it's, uh, it's interesting to be able to, first of all, get a strong hunch to be able to say something like that at I such think, a young age. Yeah, I think
1: if I have hunches at that age, I probably wouldn't be sharing them unless I was pretty certain, um, but obviously would be watching and monitoring. But I think that one of the difficulties is, is that The children on the more severe end of the spectrum, and certainly children who've got associated diagnoses of, say, an intellectual disability, so where their development might be delayed as well, then, in fact, that also changes it. So I think there's no doubt that the more severe your ASD, the earlier you're likely to get a diagnosis, and the children with milder ASD get diagnosed later, and that kind of makes sense. And
0: what's one of the later diagnoses that you've done?
1: We see children, I see children up until the end of school, um, so Year 12. (laughs) You know, I mean, there are plenty of people in our community still who have never been diagnosed. I I think that parents make, you know, a variety of choices for their children as to whether they do or don't want to go down a diagnostic pathway. And Many of these people have never been seen by anybody, Um, and some of them have very effectively flowed under the radars. And I, I think you just have to sort of pick it up where you can. There's not a lot of point looking back in hindsight. And it's about saying, okay, well, today's today and where are we going to go from here?
0: So we're just about to wrap up. We're almost at that time marker. And we'd love to to finish up. I think it's so important to understand, you know, the complexity behind disability and, and families that have individuals with special needs and, and the struggles and the hardships, but but also the love and Ways that you can really support to create happy stories and really nice supportive environments. Are there any examples that you have of of cases where that support for the individual, from the individual, from the community, has really come together to to really have a positive impact?
1: I've talked about this with Anna before. I think that the younger years with a child with ASD can be can be difficult, and there's no doubt that behaviours in Their first three or four years can often be quite challenging to understand and manage. The social interactive stuff and the inflexibility and rigidity can be really challenging in the primary school years. But where kids with ASD can really often really come into their own is when they get into the secondary schools because they're they're by much bigger, they're... Like we all, they will choose to be friends with kids with ASD because they get each other and we we all tend to choose to be with people who are like us. So often my parents come in and say to me, oh, you know, her three best friends have all got ASD. And I say, well, yeah, (laughs) she's choosing to be with friends with people who are just like her. So I think that there's a bigger hood, if you like, so much more likely to meet like-minded people. But the other thing that happens, of course, in secondary school is that you can start to choose... Subjects you can choose: media and technology, music. Um, because one of the things for children with ASD is, I mean, they are hardwired smart, and the the way they um, they view things, their their memories are often absolutely extraordinary. I mean, many of the children I see with ASD have have literally got photographic memories. They can, they can. One of the, one of my patients can tell you any single public transport route across. Victoria. If I sit here and I say to him, I want to go from here to Bayswater via Carnegie, he will tell me what bus to catch, what number. I mean, it's extraordinary. So the the talents that these kids have are amazing and it's about finding them. So they might be technological, often involving memory. One of my patients has the most extraordinary football stats. He, at the age of five, he could tell me the dates of birth of all the AFL footballers. Millie's um, on
2: that route. I've got Millie up for like a to be a, like a statistician or a, yeah. a commentator on the footy. She's so, amazing. she knows all about it.
1: I, I, I'm, not wow. ki- I'm not kidding you. He would say to me, you know, the date of birth of every AFL footballer. And I, I, I can barely five. remember
0: my best friends. It's
1: <laughs> incredible. So it's about discovering. So once you can get on top of the emotional challenges and some of those things that really do drive some of the challenges in the younger years, they they often have incredible musical talent. I had one patient who went off to Blackburn High, which is a notoriously supportive school, and um, they have a very strong music thing. And she had learnt recorder in her grade six, I think. She started trumpet in year seven. She was with the junior MSO by like year nine on trumpet. She'd been playing it for two years. Like So these kids do have really quite extraordinary talents and it's about getting to the point where you can actually enjoy their uniqueness and find those talents and support them in a way that they understand and And then you get your gold.
2: In this era with such short attention spans to things, our kids who spend so much time doing what they love, they're actually really being able to master whatever it is that they love because of that commitment and focus. And that's actually going to set them apart down the track. Mm. And, you know, we talk about the fact that a lot of them
1: are, are a bit inattentive and, and a bit hyperactive and they may even have full-blown ADHD. But I think that um, when you find something that they're good at, they will sit for hours and hours and hours and hours, you know, making Legos of, of a 18 to 20-year-old or 18 to adult. You know, at the age of eight, and they just sit there and just put it together seamlessly. So, I think it's really important for people to understand that yes, there are challenges, but in fact, so so many of these kids have really, really, um, quite remarkable talents, and it's about finding them. And it's not about finding a talent for the sake of it. It's about finding something that they can they can be proud of, that they can feel successful at, because they've often experienced a lot of. Um, of challenging failures, I think we'd have to be honest to say, especially socially. So I think it's really important that they get to experience that sort of success and that pride in what they can achieve.
0: Well, thank you so much for today. It has been really great to chat and, and awesome just to explore some of these awesome concepts. Um, so we really appreciate the time and, and looking forward to exploring some more further and, and having a chat again. Thank pleasure. you so
2: much, Annie.
0: My great pleasure. <laughs>